Now, <laughs> hey everybody, it's Richard Harris from the Surf and Sales Podcast with Scott Lease. Super excited today. Um, we have, gosh, I'm gonna. She's definitely smarter than me. She went to Carnegie Mellon. So um, Sarah Levinson, who is a strategic strategic account executive over at Live Person, who has done all kinds of crazy things at Clicktail, at IBM. Uh, she even sort of goes to my old thing of like newspapers. So Sarah, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me guys. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so so just sort of people can have context, right? Um, in general over your career, what kind of sales cycles are you used to? What kind of deal sizes are you used to? Depending on, and I, you know, I'm conscious of, of, you may not be able to name which company, so. Um, but I want to give people context for where your background is. Yeah, sure. And that's actually a, a great segue to talk about it. So when I started in sales, which was in, let's see, 2012 at IBM, I started as an SDR. And I was really kind of a glorified SDR because I was selling into the install base at IBM. Um, so I would call into these massive IBM accounts and I was kind of selling, like, first started out, I was selling like 100 to 150K deals into these install bases. I had never done sales. Um, I was very green, as they say. I had, you know, a, a marketing background, but that was it. Um, when I went to Clicktail, I kind of took a step up into enterprise and I started selling um, more six-figure deals, more 500K range. And now at Live Percent, I'm working on seven-figure deals um, with ex exceptions. Um, but my sales cycles at Live Person are a lot longer. It's a transformational sale where we make big changes to the contact center and how the company does business. So those tend to take, you know, six to nine months at this point. Whereas when I started in SAS, it was, I don't want to say easier, but it was kind of like a three month sales cycle. So it's been a big change and a, a good yeah. challenge. I just love the fact that you call like, oh, you know, I was, I was, a, I was an SDR and it was a hundred thousand dollar deal, right? Like that was just like so casual of like, wait a minute, <laughs> Scott and I come from the startup world where we're like, oh my God, that's enterprise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> what, what's, what's the biggest difference other than maybe the, the sales cycle? What is the biggest difference or, or additional complexity between closing a seven figure versus a six figure deal? Yeah, such a good question. So, the thing that really compelled me to work on these types of deals is that when I was selling, you know, these SaaS solutions that always felt to me like it's like a cog in the website that makes the website do a certain thing or it's like a certain type of data, I was usually meeting with one person. So I'd meet with like the VP of marketing or the SVP maybe to get that contract done. Um, what I'm working on now and when you work on a, a seven-figure agreement you're meeting with several C-level people and typically a C-level person or the CEO is signing that contract. So I think the biggest difference is actually how you position yourself. Cause it's funny, we're all laughing about how hundred K like sounds big or sounds small. Well, it's all perspective and like how you present the value to the buyer. Um, and so I've always approached selling software and I think this is part of the reason I like sales is I'm not selling software. I'm painting, I don't want to sound cheesy, but I'm painting a dream of what their company could be like, how they could do business. Um, and I think that's the difference between selling enterprise and selling something that's a kind of point solution. I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's yeah. kind of how I think about yeah, the no, approach. No, that's, that's really good uh, insight. Is there, 
do you start to get comfortable and used to pitching seven figure deals or maybe said differently, is there a size of a deal at this point that you would get nervous pitching and have to like check yourself and be like, Oh, we just play cool, play cool. This is, this is not that big of a deal for them. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I don't feel nervous talking about money. Um, I know that that's not true for everyone, but, um, one of my coaches that I've worked with, Lori Richardson, who I think Scott, you know her. Um, yeah, she we, has both, this, we both know her well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she has. Um, I, I'll I'll mispronounce the methodology, but there's kind of a sales DNA test um, that she's reviewed with me. And one of the things in that sales DNA is comfort talking about money. Um, and let's just say I did not score perfectly on that exam. Okay, I have a lot of flaws, just like all <laughs> salespeople. Just like we but all do. I, Right. But I scored very high on comfort talking about money. And I think the earlier you talk about money and the more confidently you talk about money, it's just a price. And if you've, del if you've delivered the value and proven the value and done things like giving them great references, then I think it's all in the, it's all in the tone of your voice, how you deliver the price. If they know that you're shaky, then they know the price isn't real. But if you're serious and and I've even had clients laugh at me and say, like, that's not really the price. And then I just don't laugh. And then as soon as I'm not laughing, they know I'm serious. So it's, I think the delivery is a big part of it. And just that you're, so what, so you're what okay you in your regular life talking about. What do you, when you don't laugh or like, what, what is your actual reaction? Like role play, role play with me. Like, ha ha, uh, not really the price, is it? Are you just silent? in silence sometimes depending on the personality of the person they will laugh and i'll say i'm not joking you like that this deadpan, you'll be that deadpan that deadpan um i, I, I had a i had a manager who told me once that uh like the way that i close deals was to lock i always unlocking my eyes with people you know like really making that not to i'm freaking richard out but like yeah deadpan like, no, that's I've done great. It. I love it. I don't have a problem with it. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. That's great. Now you're laughing when I say that. So now I'm wondering why is she laughing at me? So you've made me nervous now. So um, <laughs> just, I, I want to come back to this sort of comfort for, for money conversation. And, and I actually want to even back up further. Like, did you, like, if you look at your resume, if you look at the things you've done, you, you clearly went into business. Like, are you one of the rare people who was like, oh, I want to be in sales? Was that part of your family background? Were either your parents in business or sales? Yeah, and it's funny that you asked me that. Um, so my dad was, he's not now, but he was. And I actually said, my entire life, I will never, I will never subject myself to the ups and downs of quota, having my mood be affected by things I can't control. So I said I would never do it. Um, I didn't get a business degree. My degree from Carnegie Mellon is actually a master's in professional writing and communication. So it's really well, like I, an- I ended up being fortuitous. That is absolutely a business degree, so. <laughs> I think it is, uh, but it's not a traditional MBA. Um, I started out, you were right, my first job after graduate school was at a newspaper in the marketing department and my boss at that newspaper, his niece was a very, very senior person at IBM, um, a couple people under Jenny Rometty. I told her I wanted a marketing job and she refused to recommend me unless I tried sales. Good for her. So what, yeah. but let me ask you this question. 
was money a, was money an okay topic to talk about in your family, or was it that taboo? Like, how did your did your uh, parents teach you about money? Did they teach you about investing? And do you think that contributes to your comfort level of not not that you don't care, but you just you know how to handle the conversations? I actually think I have a different theory, which is I grew up um, with a scarcity of money, so it was kind of like. Sometimes we had it, sometimes we didn't. That's the kind of sales job that, that my dad had. And I really believe that people who grow up with fear of not having enough money are driven in sales by that fear to get the financial security that they didn't have. And some of the best salespeople that I've ever seen in terms of like grit and will not give up are people that came from that kind of background. So um, I think that that actually that fear behind it, it is what drove me. And, and to answer your question, no, it wasn't it wasn't a big focus. It's more that the fear of financial security was out there. And I think that contributed to my early. Did you have, were you and again, without getting too deep, but were you that aware of like and I don't know if it's too deep, but like. Oh, rent's going to be tough this month, or it's rent versus this, or like, were you, were you did you hear those conversations between your parents growing yeah, up? Yeah, I, I did. And I think it's because it's interesting. I don't think that happens all the time, but I think when somebody's in a sales career, there's something very visible about like that struggle of success versus not success and that kind of up and down. So we were never, you know, where we were going to be on the street, but there were struggles from month to month that, yeah, I definitely knew about them. Um, yeah. And I think that drove me in a lot of ways, education and, and early career. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you mentioned kind of the grit, you know, even, even to get out of some of these situations, <clears throat> you've got to show grit and resilience and, yeah. and toughness. And you know what it's like to, you know, kind of come from, from nothing um, and so you, you don't ever want to go back to that either. Yeah. Right? So yeah. you're motivated to change the situation for yourself. And then, you know, as, as I got older, it was more of like, man, I, I got to change the game for my family. I got to change mm -hmm. the game for my, my kids. And so yeah. they start at a different plateau than, than I started at even. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I completely agree. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, burnout we you mentioned something you know offline um you know when we were going back and forth prior to the show and we haven't talked about that all that much just in general on our almost 100 episodes now um and you you, you had a little bit of a i don't know not an episode that, that makes it sound weird but like you you got close to having some burnout so can you talk to us a little bit about what that was like and what you did to solve for that? And then maybe what you do now to, to keep yourself in check so it doesn't happen again. Yeah. And I'm, I'm happy to share a specific episode. Um, so the reason that I think it's so important to talk about burnout is because I see a lot of young people, um, particularly young women who are so, you know, like we were just talking about, you're so driven, particularly in your early 20s, to establish yourself, to be the person that stays at work until seven or eight o'clock at night, to be the first one there in the morning and driving those deals. And you know that your success is relying on you. I think that's part of it. But the real driver of this, or at least it was for me, is, is company culture can contribute to burnout. So 
if the if it's coming from the top that you're answering Slack messages on weekends, you have to respond to emails, you have to answer if your boss texts you or calls you on a Saturday, like that just gets established as the norm by the leadership, then the employees are going to follow. And there's, are, so, are, you, are you saying there's, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a difference there between somebody who's doing those things on their own without the pressure from above and somebody who's doing those things because the pressure exists? Yeah. And I think there's a personality type of person who's always going to want to work around the clock. But when the culture starts to create that in a number of people, I think it's super dangerous. So. Um, and I'll just share like what happened to me is that I was, I just told you guys, I was the top rep at, at Clicktail, my last company for three years, we were working to build a startup. It went from 130 people to 300 people in the three years that I was there. So like you guys know what that growth is like, like being on a crazy ship that you can't stop and you're just doing it every day. Um, and I was kind of getting into a mode where I was sick a lot, like getting sinus infections and getting just sick like and not resting because I was flying all the time and uh, I took an antibiotic to try to get better and I anaphylaxed outside of a client meeting and was hospitalized and in the in the hospital in the ER I asked the doctor for the wi-fi password because I still wanted to be working so I could reschedule my meeting and the doctor like grabbed my arm and she said I don't know what you're doing, but you almost died today and you got to slow it down. Um, And that was like three months after that, I got recruited by LP and I moved. And I think it wasn't so much the specific job. I think that a startup contributes to it, but I just didn't see what, what was happening in my behavior. I just thought I have to work. I have to stay on the top. And I think the way I've shifted that now is number one, I'm in a different culture. Um, but number two, I now realize there are more important things than work. And it sounds really funny, but like, there are more important things than work. But when, when did the light bulb go off though? It certainly doesn't sound like it went off, you know, the first hour that you were in the hospital. How, how, how long after that particular event did the light bulb go off and be like, well, there actually is more important things than, than work for you. Um, it went off, I would say a few months after I just kind of started getting, I just started getting done. Like I, I, I got more tired. I got more irritated by simple things that used to, I still felt driven by, like, I just wanted a change. And as soon as I made the company change and the culture change, I think the life changes just came along with it. Um, you know, LP regularly surveys their employees on company culture. There's a very good culture here. Um, and it's not working all on the weekend. So yeah, I think it, it was that shift. And now I have habits of I'm not responding to email on weekends. Like I don't really check it. I don't look at Slack or Hangouts after 6 or 7 p.m. And I just don't care. <laughs> like if someone's <laughs> mad about that, I, I think that's what like when you get hospitalized, yeah, it didn't set in right after, but the more people I told the story to, actually, that was the shift. Mm. The more friends and people I told the story to, they're like, Sarah, yeah. what? Yeah. And you start to be like, okay, maybe I don't actually have work-life balance. Right. No, I, I yeah. have the same challenge that I've, I've talked about. Um, I am curious, though, about when you decided to leave, 
you know, it, it sounds like it was like you got recruited, which is cool. So an opportunity presented itself, but were you also looking for culture differences? Were you now aware or was it also something oh, yeah. like, so what were you again, for, and this is for the listeners, like, okay, this company runs this way. How did you in the interview process interview them to make sure it was a good culture for you? Right. Because you have to make sure it's the right fit in this mental health space. Yeah, that's so true. So I deliberately asked questions like I required to answer emails and things like that after a certain time. Um, is it the culture here that people are working on weekends? I think the biggest thing is interviewing the person that's going to be your sales manager and getting a vibe for like how much are they working um, compared to their, you know, what they're doing in their regular life. So I pointedly asked those questions, but um, I think I also looked at, do they invest in things like surveying the employees about the culture? Do they, you know, have employee events that don't only revolve around drinking, which that's like a whole separate topic, but like, do they have employee events that aren't just let's party and stay out until, you know, one in the morning and then get up the next day and do five meetings? Like those kinds of questions, what do they do together as a company, um, were important to me. I have a question because I come from the newspaper industry that yeah. existed a ton in the newspaper industry. Did you, did you experience that just out of curiosity? Yeah, it was kind of, so not the drinking part or like the parties. Cause I think honestly I was like too young and one of the youngest people on the staff to even do that at the time. But I definitely experienced the boys culture and I think the newspaper industry was the perfect training. Unfortunately, Absolutely. we're, we're getting better thanks to people like Lori and lots of efforts around it. But yeah, it was good training for that. Yes. That's great. I, I love how you said that's how you look for it. Cause that's, I really want to make sure we highlight that. How do you look for that right company culture? Cause we hear it all the time. And I think to a large extent, people would probably even be afraid to ask the questions you suggested, but I'm hoping they walk away going, I'm going to ask at least one of them. <laughs> Try and yeah. do What's your, what's your thought on um, coaching, not coaching reps, being coachable, you know, just as you come up and you've come up through some, you know, what I would call the places where you get hired at IBM I mean, they put you through real sales training. They put you mm -hmm. through that stuff. Like they invest in it. They always have. What's your idea of coaching and non-coaching these days? Yeah, that's such a great question. So I was anti-coaching. I think for a long time. And I think that just means like, like, I like, was a, like most top producers early in their career. Right. A hundred percent. Like, what is that ego about where you're just like, no one can teach me anything. Yeah, you, just, you show up and you're like a, a rocket ship at the beginning. And you're like, I know everything. I've got this. And so to answer your question, as soon as I was at, so when I left IBM, which, you're right. That is, in my opinion, still the best sales training in the industry. Like just one nugget about that is that they put you in a room with a IBM retiree who pretends to be the client and then three of your peers grade you on your sales meeting. So that, in my opinion, like no better training than that. I did that for two weeks and that was amazing. Um, but when I went to Clicktail and, and started having great success, I just thought, you know, what Scott just said, which is like, okay, no one can teach me anything now. So I wasn't really coached there other than by managers. And I think actually what happened there um, 
that probably limited me in a lot of ways was because I was number one, nobody really, they'd always just say after my meetings, oh, oh, Sarah, that was great. Just keep being you, like keep being you. Um, And when I got to live first and one of my first bosses was this guy by the name of Sean Burke, who is one of the best salespeople. I know Sean. I've ever, ever met one, learned so much from him and the, I think he was at LP for about two years. And he said to me, um, you know, people that care about you will care to coach you and they'll care to make you get better, even if you're good. And he kind of planted the seed with me, introduced me to Lori, who was one of my first coaches in this role, um, along with him coaching me, you know, as my manager, which is great. Now I am a coach devotee. Thank you need it all the time, always getting new insights from it. And I've worked with other people, not just Lori. Um, and what I think it's moment? super important. What was your moment? What happened that finally made you flip the switch? Was there a deal you lost? Was it someone finally just said it like Sean said it in a certain way? And there's like, okay, I respect him. He's right. I need to shut up. and yeah. listen. What, what was it for you? Um, got in my face and said, you know, you are coachable. You could be way better than you are. You know, you think you're hot shit basically, but you could, you could be way, you could really be a star. Um, and, and he would ask me this question all the time, which so got under my skin. He would ask me if my potential was one to a hundred, where did I think I was? And I remember answering him and I said 10 and he was like, that's right. 10 out of a hundred. So how are you, gonna... you called yourself. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't want to say like, oh, it's you don't work hard or you don't do those things. But when I think about my potential, like, I don't know if you're being honest with yourself, like, are you really going to be the guy that says I'm at 90 out of 100? Like, no, I don't feel like that. So that got under my skin. And then that made me more open to not just his coaching, but other people. So yeah, he, he was responsible for that mental shift. So, for sure. so when you, when you are a star and, and I mean that just was your number one on the leaderboard, right. And you open yourself to coaching, you know, what are you, what are you learning differently? Cause you know, for you, it's, it may not be, you know, a backhanded close or, you know, some other, you know, technique or whatever. What is it that you're learning when you are good to go to good from good to great? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is having somebody who's not in your company with an outside perspective, like you're talking to them about a deal. They're not in your company. They don't know the limitations of your company. They don't know the people at your deal. They're just hearing it from you so they can approach it in a different way. And then I think in terms of like just acceleration of my own career, it's been so helpful to have people's perspective, to have somebody say, oh, if you think you want that promotion, why do you want that? Like, why do you want to be in that job besides just wanting another title? Um, and just having people dig into those questions, I think is a big part of it. All right, this is my last question on this or my comment, and I'll let Scott ask something else because I know he's chomping, but <laughs> I've found, I, I've recently started getting a little bit more coaching and I found that the coach really just pulls the stuff that's in the back of my head that I've been wanting to get to, to the front. And to a certain extent, they're not even, they're facilitating me to make that a priority more than it is helping me uncover, oh, you need to do this better, right? Mm -hmm. And and I'm curious if you see or feel it that way, or you're like, no, they bring out these other things too. No, I think it's, it's a really good point that they bring what's in the back of your head. I'll give you an example. I was on a coaching call last week and I was talking about, I mean, we're doing it now, but I was talking about how 
video content on LinkedIn is getting way more success right now than text, right? Because everybody wants to see people's faces because we're all starving to see each other's faces. So I had been talking about, I'm terrified to do a LinkedIn video. I don't want to do it. My coach was like, why do you think that anyone posting a LinkedIn video has anything more important to say than you? What are you afraid of with the video? And we just had that conversation. She's like, just make the video, put it out there. Maybe it's going to suck. And like, it got tons of views and people really liked it. And then it felt, not only it felt good to be validated, but it felt just like that was something I had been thinking about for so long. And to just have her kind of like shame me a little bit about it. Yeah, that really helped. <laughs> it's funny. The best thing about LinkedIn is when something sucks, nobody sees it. Like that's the, that's the part we all yeah. have to remember, right? When it's bad, nobody sees it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I like that you just mentioned shame because you've now mentioned multiple times how you were the number one rep at Clicktail, which brings this whole conversation full circle because we are all friends with uh, Tony Marshall. Oh, right. Who was your colleague at Clicktail. And so I, I feel every time you say you were number one at Clicktail, all I hear is I kick Tony's ass. I kick Tony's ass every <laughs> single time. But I, I, but what I want to tie this tie this into is you know it's interesting how the world works. Like I went to college with Tony. Tony and I were uh, college tennis uh, teammates. Yeah, Richard. Richard like ends up being Tony's boss. Tony introduces Richard and I. Here we are. Tony suggests that that we talk to you. Here we are. And you mentioned to me, and you've done a really good job of utilizing your network to progress and move along in your in your career um mm -hmm. and i just had long conversation yesterday with almost 200 people about like you know trying to navigate finding jobs and everything right now and and you know the, the main point that a lot of us were trying to make was like it is all about relationships right now mm -hmm. you know you, you can't just start applying to all these jobs that you see online no, nobody's gonna gonna hire you that way so yeah. You were a little bit ahead of the curve on this, I think. Uh, you said you, you said you haven't had to apply for a job in a really, really long time. So how did you, what was that process like for you? How strategic were you in, in building and growing your network out? So I remember Richard asked me earlier in the conversation, like, were you always a business person? The answer to that is no. But one thing that I always was, um, was a connector. I love connecting people. I want to be the person at the dinner table that's like, oh, Susie, you and Rick both did this thing. You should talk about that. Like, that's something I always did. And I, it started kind of when I was in college. I, you know, became, you're, like a a you're the matchmaker. Yes. yes. Um, and, and not just that, I always had a sense for this person is somebody that, could play a role in my life, not just now, but maybe later. I had like a sixth sense for that. I think um, I, I could kind of sniff out, like for example, my boss at the Post-Gazette, the newspaper that I started at in Pittsburgh, I can draw a line from him to every job I've had. So his niece hired me at IBM. Then I um, became friends with a rep there, ended up working for that rep at IBM at Clicktail. His name is Derek Francis. He's still there. He's Tony's boss. Um, then when I left Clicktail and went to LivePerson, I was referred to LivePerson by someone who had worked at Clicktail. And like the string just keeps going on. And as I kept these mentors and connections, 
I stayed in touch with people, which I think makes the difference. Like, yes, you can meet someone once and like connect with them on LinkedIn, but I'm reaching out to these people even when I don't need them, so to speak, because I don't know when I do. The same goes for accounts. If I meet someone at a conference and I don't have that account, I still am going to connect with that person and make an impression because I'm going to probably have that account a year from now because of how much it changes. It's like that kind of thing happens all the time. So I think networking and knowing how to present yourself, I think that there is no more important skill than that. Um, that's, that's how you have a writing degree and end up in sales. Like, how do you do that? Let's say you go and meet somebody at a conference. Granted, that's not happening yeah. here. How do you, you just send them an email saying, hey, it was great meeting you, right? We all sort of do that. But then what do you do? Do you just send them an article? Do you actually try to, hey, can we do the virtual coffee thing? Like, what's your yeah doing now? So I always, the LinkedIn thing is kind of a standard. Uh, right. You know, I would, I would always do that, connect with them on LinkedIn, maybe send a nice note. I actually try to get people's cell phone numbers if we end up having a really good connection. Because then we can text during the event. If we're working on a deal, we can be texting that way. If I want to reach out and say, like during a time like this, hey, so-and-so, how are you doing? Um, what's new at your company? I've found that when I'm texting with someone, the relationship level goes from not that friendly to super friendly. We're talking about more than we would be talking about over email. Um, and I always try to head of conferences to research who is going to be there, connect with them on LinkedIn, send a personal note. So that that way they knew my face and can recognize me, you know, if they came to the booth. Yeah. I, the thing I love about, about texting is it doesn't get lost. It doesn't go into spam filter. On occasion, they might not respond, but we're not at that stage yet. We're not, we haven't as yeah. humans gotten there. Um, Where we're ignoring I, and I know they got it. Like there's no, like you didn't get yeah. that message kind of thing anymore. So that's fascinating. So what, what are you doing? I want to come back to that burnout topic you were talking about. Yeah. What are you doing now to better prepare yourself? Yeah, this is really hard. I'll just be honest, are, you know. Are you, working, are you working more than normal now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think that's pretty common. And the thing that really burns me is, like, I don't want to be on internal calls. That's not fun for me. Like, yes, I can learn things on them, and, like, sharing stories is good, but the volume of internal calls now that we're all here and we can just have a meeting about it. I think that's really hard for me because now I have to fit in time to actually work on my proposals and deals. Can't you, um, can't, and can't you just say thanks, but no thanks. I'm skipping out on those. Starting to do that again now, but for a while when we were, I mean, I used to ignore them a lot more, obviously when I was, you know, taking a flight every week somewhere, but um, now I'm starting to, ignore the ones I can and not participate or handle it over email or quick call, whatever, if I can. Um, I think the thing that's hard though is I've always had a home office since I started in sales, but I was never here this much. Like it used to be kind of nice to see my office. Like, Oh, I can do my expenses now. I'm here on a Friday, you know, can unpack my suitcase, whatever. Now the thing I really struggle with is creating variety. Like I need variety in my day. I used to be in different meetings and going into a corporate office of, of whatever company. So the thing I'm trying to do now that's helping, um, two things. I go for a run every day at noon, no matter what. 
So like maybe it's a crappy run where I don't go that far. Maybe it's a great run. So like I do it every day. So I can just have that mental break. And then the other thing is I'm trying to create projects that are going to mean something when this is over. So like one example is I'm serving our sales team of what are they struggling with being home all the time? And like what tips and tricks and skills can we bring people in to teach us stuff? Okay. So doing surveys of, of the team to understand that, or like creating one pagers that I've needed forever that I never prioritized. So I'm trying to do those kinds of projects, but it's hard. Like it's hard getting up and being in the same place every day. Do you have, do you, are you, do you have kids? I know you're married. No, I don't have kids yet. So, and I feel like if I did right now, that would make this 50 times more stressful. Like I can't imagine what that's like. Yeah, that 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 is always an interesting piece. So yeah, um, <laughs> there's I, I no there's you. no escape. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah wish, like, I, and, I wish and, I could. I wish I could go for a run every day at noon. <laughs> not not always going to happen when suddenly your kids are like, Dad, I can't figure out this homework problem. I need this. Yeah, like, yeah oh, and I I I've I just been so all many... four hours straight. Like I have to help you now. I can't ignore you. <laughs> And you have to be the teacher, like you're the homeschool teacher. And like, yeah, I mean, I have colleagues, obviously, that are going through that. And I can't imagine. I pretty much just have to let my dog out every once in a while. And, you know, it's pretty low key. You're, you, you've been participating a lot with the, um, like, women in sales group with, with yeah. and that kind of stuff. Talk to us a little bit about, about that and the work that you're doing there and, and why that's, you know, becoming such a passion for you. Yeah, it is. Um, so it was before I met Lori. Um, it's obviously been great that I got to get connected with her uh, through Sean and, and be part of that. So I've served as a panelist for Women's Sales Pro and kind of like an ambassador for getting people into some of Lori's events. It is really important to me, uh, not just to see sales teams kind of balance out more in tech, but also because the data is there to say that women can really exceed in sales for very specific reasons. Um, but I think there's a, still a stigma out there for a lot of women, not just that, oh, that's a boys club, but also that, well, I don't have the confidence or I don't have the skills or, you know, I don't have a background in technology. So just trying to be an advocate that that's not necessarily true. Yeah. I mean, I've, I can think of, of two women that I'm talking to right now who are like director level sales leaders and I'm trying to push them to go get VP of, of sales gigs. And like, I have interviews like waiting for them. Right. And I know that these ladies would be phenomenal in the role and both of them are hesitant a little bit and they're, and they're kind of questioning their skills and their ability. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, go for it. And I was having this conversation with my wife. My wife was like, yeah, you know, um, women tend to kind of not go for things and as much unless they're a hundred percent confident that they're qualified. Whereas you, Scott would like raise your hand and, and go for that. If you were like 1% qualified, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> it's an interesting, interesting but dynamic, you know, and all you have to do is look at LinkedIn, okay? So people like you, Scott, and, and you have this podcast going, you're posting. If you look at the comments on LinkedIn, you don't see a lot of women saying, hey, I would love to be on your podcast. But you see a lot of men saying that. 
um, men with less experience, but they're volunteering and raising their hand. I think the other thing that happens as women kind of uh, go up the ladder in sales, if they get there, is um, the stats of women in sales leadership are like something like 12% globally. Yeah, it's really low. Really low. Yep. Um, and that's, I think, I think it's a lot of reasons, but I think when women think about the, you know, I want to have a family and do these other things and I want to do this career, you know, you know that there are going to be sacrifices there depending on what your arrangement is with your partner and like what kind of support you have. But like, that's a real decision women have to make. And when Lori and I have been at these events, you wouldn't believe the women who say, you know, I hid that I was pregnant for six months or like, I didn't tell my boss or like, I think there's so many decisions that still have to be made, even though women have, have gained so much ground in so many areas, they still are negotiating those areas of, you know, motherhood and work and life, that whole balance. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, um, so what would you be saying to yourself as you think about if you decide, and maybe you've decided we're not going to have kids, which is fine, but what advice would you give to those people who are thinking about that so that, that they can feel proud about it and not feel so concerned and, you know, I know it exists, right? I, I, there's no doubt yeah. it exists, but I don't know that I, I mean, I can give some advice about it, but I'm, I'm still a guy, right? Like I don't, <laughs> I don't know, you know, you know, I don't know what that's like. Yeah, that's such a great question. So I think that's why people like Lori and the women that she brings together are so important because there are so many women in Lori's organization and at her events who have done it and done it successfully. And, you know, I'll be honest, the first event I went to at, at uh, one of the first conferences I went to with Lori, I asked that very question and said, you know, I don't know how to negotiate this. This doesn't seem possible to me. And I do want to have children. Um, and so I think it's just about knowing people have done it. You need a supportive partner. You need to know what kind of support systems you have. And I think speaking of boundaries and, and balance, you need to know what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do. For example, you know, I have female colleagues right now who have said to me, I might not be getting eight hours of work a day, but like being a mom is also important. And that's the balance I have to have right now because my kids are here. And so I think it's just setting those clear boundaries for yourself and knowing it's possible. And I guess the way I feel is my whole career has been, you're too young to do this. You don't have a degree in this, you know, tell me all the reasons why I shouldn't have my own sales territory when I'm 26. Like I need to earn my stripes, blah, blah, blah. So it's like, okay. Or I could just figure out how to do it. And now I almost feel a responsibility to do that. So that other women know it's possible, which is why I'm really passionate about. What Lori I, think, does. I think I found the female version of Scott <laughs> without, without the beard. So, uh, this is, that, that's really great, Sarah. I really appreciate you sharing that because that's the kind of stuff we want to talk about because we know it doesn't get talked about. Kind of sort of moving into, into sort of wrapping this up. You know, the last thing we love to ask people is how can we be supportive to you and um, things that you're doing? Uh, you know, obviously women in sales, women sales pros, we both know and love Lori. We've had her on the show. Um, mm -hmm. What can we do to help you though? Yeah, that's such a nice question. So I am trying to build um, successfully so far more of a presence on LinkedIn, doing more video content, putting more of like the stories that I've told you guys out there. Cause I think, I don't know, they're important for people to read. There's an SDR starting tomorrow somewhere um, male or female, 
that might be really interested in in reading some of the things I've been through. So I think if you guys like and support my content, that would be awesome. I think the other thing is when you notice um, a woman replying on some of your content or putting herself out there to want to be on your show. And if she is a good fit, like you've done with me, which is awesome, support that. Because I think the more women become visible in this role, the more they'll feel like, hey, I could see myself. I could see myself doing that. I don't have to do a marketing job. I could do a sales job. Um, so those are the two things that mean the most to me. That's easy. Who, do, who should we talk to? Who should we have on the show? Oh, that's a great question. So um, I will pass a couple LP names your way, um, but there's lots of women out there. So I've been most inspired at Live Person by Sloane DePiro, who is one of my colleagues. Um, she just moved from a commercial sales role. She was a top contributor last year, and now she's become a strategic seller. So she's great. I'll, I'll pass you her information. Um, I really love what Sam Jacobs and the Revenue Collective are doing. I just became a member of Revenue Collective, and I think that's just how did I live without that for so long. Um, so I'm, I'm really into that now. Um, happy to share more if I think of them, but Sloan is on my mind because we just had a conversation. And I also just got connected to um, Tabitha in Pittsburgh, who's a, a yeah. big time recruiter. Yeah, I know Tabitha. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool person. And we found out we're both based in Pittsburgh. So when it's not, you know, coronavirus lockdown, we're going to get together <laughs> and hang out. Nice. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. We really appreciate you joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Um, super hey, interesting conversation. Like we're gonna we're gonna need you to close some seven figure sponsorship deals for us. So <laughs> we'll be we'll be in we'll be in touch. No pressure. Thanks so much, guys, for having me. I really You're appreciate welcome. it. Thanks, Bye, Sarah. Sarah.